welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello, and welcome to the third in our series of Hague Mothers podcasts. I'm Ruth, and I have the privilege of coordinating this project for Philia. In previous podcasts, we talked about the injustices created by the Hague Convention for mothers and for their children. The issue of domestic violence has been front and centre. The Convention was originally targeted at fathers who took their children across international borders. It was intended to ensure the swift and safe return of those children to the primary carer assumed to be the mother. So the legislation did not consider why a parent might take their child. Even the grave risk or intolerable situation defense focuses only on the child. The risk to the mother is of no interest to the court. To discuss this issue and the work that's being done internationally to acknowledge the significance of domestic violence in hate cases, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome lawyer and activist Sula Shetty, who is working with us on the Hague Mothers campaign. Lovely to be here, Ruth. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming. So Suda is the founder and director of the Hague Domestic Violence Project at UC Berkeley. Her research focuses on international child abduction and violence against women. She's been working with judges, lawyers and academics across the states to create judicial handbooks and to provide training to help protect women and their children from the abusive consequences of the Hague legislation. Sudo is also a founding member and chair of CHIA, a grassroots South Asian domestic violence prevention program in Seattle. And she's the recipient of many, many awards, including the Father Drynan Award for forwarding the ethics of pro bono and public service in law schools. Thank you so much for being here, Sudo, and thank you for being part of the project. So, Great pleasure. Thank you. So if we could start just by finding out how you first became involved in the Hague Convention. Um, that's very interesting. It's just one woman. We'll call her Jane Doe. Um, I was actually at Seattle University Law School at that time and also the director for the Access to Justice Institute. And my work was really looking at access for people of color and immigrants into the courts. And I was doing a lot of domestic violence work, but my work was only focused on immigrant mothers, looking at um, deportation proceedings, uh, looking at access to the courts, the, you know, and working with the police on that. But then this case came uh, across and it was sent by Professor Jeffrey Edelson from the University of Minnesota. He said, there is a mother who needs some help. She came to me, she uh, reached out to me to be a child expert on her case, but I think you need to meet her. And in walks Jane Doe and she sits down and she tells me that there is this Hague Convention petition that has been filed against her. And I looked at her and I said, what are you talking about? 
I've never heard that before. And I've been doing this work, you know, on domestic violence. I pretty much know the ins and outs of domestic violence. So I don't understand this one. And she said, well, and I said, why don't you just tell me a story? And her case was, um, she had left, she'd gotten married to a German citizen, moved to Germany. And um, she was a doctor here in the US, practicing doctor, but because of getting married to this gentleman, she moved to Germany and was not able to work because she did not have work authorization, was living at home, got pregnant. And when she was sitting at the doctor's office for her OBGYN exam, when she read a brochure and she saw what was written there about domestic violence and realized that she was actually a victim of domestic violence. And so she then went to the police station to, com uh, to um, complain about it. And the police brought her back to him and told him in German that watch out, she's going to be running away, take away her passport. And so then she realized that she was not going to get any help from the police. So she went to the American embassy and the American embassy against all odds helped her. They came, um, picked her up and her kids. She had two kids by then and took her away. And so she came back to the US to her family and that's when she had filed for a dissolution for a divorce. And the divorce case had already started when this Hague petition was filed against her. And I had no clue, I had never heard of it did not know what it meant, did not understand it. I did realize now that there are now two countries involved in this issue. And she told me that the worst part of it is that the, the hearing is going to be very quick and her kids might have to go back. So I told her I needed 24 hours to go through this quickly, figure out what it is. But in the meantime, I told her, you have to tell your lawyer who's doing your dissolution proceedings that they must put domestic violence in your dissolution proceedings. Because if it is in the brief, then we can use that for this as well. And that is how it all started. This whole project came about because of Jane Doe. That's an extraordinary story, but I think it's a frequent one. Often lawyers have never heard of The Hague and then when they yes. hear it, they're so appalled at the injustice that they, they get involved. Yes, which yes. is really what yes. happened with you. So I know in our conversations before, we both see this as a feminist issue. Uh, and particularly in relation to the inequality of arms that the women face when they come to court. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that contextualization for you? So, you know, it's really, um, I think, as you said before, you know, the convention was created because there were, you know, fathers taking their kids across international borders. And I totally believe that we need to have protocols in cases like this. But I also think that the convention did not think of the unintended consequences of this of, uh, of this treaty. Essentially now more than 60% of the taking parents are mothers and their mothers are only fleeing because they want to protect themselves and the children from domestic violence. And they realize that the countries they're in is not giving them the protection that they need. And they have tried everything and it has not worked. And the only solution they have is to take their children away. And they do know the consequences that they're going to face when they do leave the children take the children and go across international borders but you know these women it's either that or they will lose their life or they might lose a child and you know they have no choice and they have no one to turn to so this is the only choice that they have and so these women then end up being in a country where now they might have no work authorization 
have no resources, do not know how the law works, do not have anybody to help them. In some cases, they may move to family, but in some cases, they may not because the Hague does not care where you take the children. And then suddenly they have a petition filed against them. And you have somebody who now is struggling to find a lawyer, doesn't know, and the law, and they find a lawyer who doesn't have a clue. So now here they're trying to educate the, the lawyer. The lawyer is now trying to figure out how do we work on this? And they get nothing, no help from anybody whatsoever. They don't have the finances. So really for women, it's like 10 strikes against them. First, you have a strike for being a woman. Then you get another strike for being with a man who's battering you. And then you have 25 more strikes when this happens to you. you know, so it's a huge disadvantage. It is, isn't it? And I know that you've done a lot of work with immigrant women, uh, where there are even further disadvantages that, that appertain to them. So do you feel that the... Uh, the whole approach that's being taken to The Hague at the moment actually acknowledges that in the courts? No, because according, you know, The Hague's primary responsibility is to send the children back to their residence, you know, the habitual residence that they came from. And then custody decisions are to be made in that country. So they do not look at any of those things. What we are trying to say, or what I'm trying to say, is that when court makes a decision to send the kids back, they've essentially made a custody decision because when the child goes back, the courts there think, oh, you know, that foreign court has sent the kids back. That means the kids are meant to stay here. And, and more often than not, the mother has also been a kidnapping charge filed against the mother for taking the child. So the moment, and most mothers go with their children, so the moment she steps onto the soil of that country, she's taken away for kidnapping charges. She's in jail. He takes the kids to court and says, there's nobody to take care of the kids. So he ends up getting custody of the kids. So, um, so you know, most people don't understand that no matter how educated you are, and how much finances you might have at home. But when you take your kids and you go away, you have nothing left. You know, it is pretty much you're starting from scratch. And so it's a devastating thing, you know, for women because, and all they're trying to do is protect their children and themselves. You know, that's it. That's all they're asking for. They're not asking for anything more. They're just saying, I just want to make sure my kids are safe and I am safe. Yes, absolutely. And I first heard of you through the Hague Domestic Violence Project, which is an extraordinary beacon of good practice in this very damaging area. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about how that project came into being and indeed what you feel it's achieved so far? Well, you know, Jane Doe walked in. I had 24 hours to figure out what this was. I suddenly read it up, everything. And then I realized, oh my God, this is a systems problem. We've got to change this bloody system. We've got to, ch we've got to change the treaty. Um, so I went to my librarian, the law school, and I said, look, Bob, we've got to change this treaty, you know? And he goes through it and everything. He says, give me 15 minutes, come back in 15 minutes. I come back in 15 minutes. And he says, so have you read this? There are 70, at that time, there were 72 countries that had signed on. He said, every one of those 72 countries has to agree to what you have to say. And then they have to sign, you know, you think any of them are going to listen to you? Who do you think you are? And I realized, oh, yeah, so that is a problem because majority of the countries do not even have human rights laws. Forget violence against women, addressing violence against women. So I thought the next step I have to do is look at it for the U.S. So if it is for the U.S., I need to first find out, I have to educate lawyers. I have to educate moms because ma these mothers have no clue. They know about the Hague 
competition, but they don't know what they need to prepare in order for that. And then I need to educate judges because the cases just come in front of them. And sometimes it's just that one only case that might come in front of them. So we've got, because we don't have a special bench. England has a special bench, Hague bench, Australia does, but US doesn't. So it's federal and state courts. So it could be in any of the courts it could go. And lo lots of these cases are in small state courts. Whereas when the Hague petition is filed and the left behind parent comes into the, U I'll only talk in the context of US, comes into the US, they have the Office of Children's, you know, Office of Children's Support gives him a whole stack of information, gives him help, gives him assistance, and he or she has nothing. And so anyway, um, I thought, okay, I've got to help create something for judges. And so that's, so immediately I put out a call for students to volunteer, got 70 volunteers. Then I decided I've got to have LexisNexis and Westlock, who are our beacons that help collect all the cases, do all the information, get them on board, got them on board. Um, they gave us every help possible. They even created a huge um, theater for us, you know, so that it would be out and everybody would know about it. We took stories of women and created a vignette and a play out of it. And it was uh, helped by um, Westlaw. And then, you know, put that together. And then I started working with different states, getting judges, Supreme Court judges of each state part to co chair committees and create guides for judges. Then decided I needed to create a bench guide. That was a bench guide. Then created a lawyer's practitioner's guide because we get lawyers calling us and saying, what do we do? How do we do this case? And I wanted to make sure that we did put all the social sciences of domestic violence into it, you know, into the grave risk, because there are um, certain exceptions. And I wanted to make sure that we used the grave risk exception, you know, for domestic violence, with domestic violence. And so that's how the project got started. And I, um, I then realized that in order for me to really make it known, I have to have enough information on it. So I started to go, I needed to have research done on it, because if I had research, then people would believe me. Otherwise, they would be like, Oh, yeah, sure. There's one case here, one case there, what do we care? You know, it's not a big deal. So then I started knocking on the door of the National Institute of Justice and kept talking to every program officer and telling them why it was important. And I kept hanging out in Washington, DC. I would go there twice a month, at least knock on doors, talk to them, got to, finally they agreed. And, you know, um, asked us to apply for a grant. So we did, we got it. I got Professor Edelson from University of Minnesota and Professor Taryn Lindhorst from the University of Washington to partner together to do the research. So they started the research, they wrote a book, it got an award. And then using that, the Violence Against Women Office then said, we are going to now put money and create a funding stream for people who want to do, you know, to actually work with the courts. So that's how we got a grant then. So we actually became part of the funding stream. So we made some of those changes. Um, and the paper that we're writing here, uh, Dr. Edelson and I actually lays down the whole history. So at some point, you'll get it. So. Thank you. I'm looking so forward to that enormously. Yes, that is that is an extraordinary story. the The idea, the heart of it, of making sure that grave risk exception included domestic violence. How successful do you feel you've been in that key issue? 
Well, you know, there's so much social violences, but the judges have generally, most lawyers actually don't know how to put that in. I mean, that is the whole thing. That's So that is very important to start educating lawyers, because if they know that can be used, they will. Because when you look at the treaty and you look at what it lays out, essentially, it does not say anything about domestic violence, right? So most lawyers don't even think about that. And grave risk essentially has been thought of as you know, like it would be now in Ukraine, you know, bombs are falling and that's a grave risk. You can't send a child back there. <clears throat> but they never thought anything about sending a child back to a home where there was an enormous amount of violence, you know, and children were exposed to it. Even if they were not in the room, they can hear it. Our children can sense the danger that is coming in when the door opens and he walks in, you know. So it's, so that was my most important thing that I needed to educate judges and lawyers. And so I started doing the circuit in the US training lawyers, you know, through the ABA, through all the different institutes that are there. I started to go into the judicial training uh, avenues and started educating judges on this issue and why it is important that we need to add that. So brought in all the social sciences and um, working with Dr. Jeffrey Edelson has really been wonderful because he brought that piece, the social sciences piece, and I bring the law and the activism piece. And so that has really helped us actually put domestic violence sort of in the forefront to be used as grave risk. But it's being used, but I still think that it needs to be done more often. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we say that it's important uh, and if lawyers start to use it and judges start to see it, I think it will make an impact. So it's a powerful combination, isn't it? As you say the law and the social sciences, yes. both evidence-based. Wonderful. So has this work had any um, impact beyond the states? Yes, um, you know, I used to get calls all the time. Australia has called us a couple of times, some some of the folks there because of the work. New Zealand has called us. The Singapore, the Justice um, of the Supreme Court um, took some took our bench guide so that they would create one for the Singapore court so that the judges would have that information. Um, we also worked with Japan. Uh, Japan was getting pressure from the U.S. to sign the treaty because there were all these left behind parents who had put a lot fathers who had put who um, organized and were putting pressure on the American embassy in Japan, you know, to make sure that Japan signs the treaty. So Japan sent for a whole year before they signed the treaty. Uh, groups of lawyers to meet with us to talk about it. And Japan never had family law before, you know, and so now they had to rethink their whole, you know, create a family law system if they signed this treaty. And, um, and we talked to them about what were some of the problems of the implement every country when they sign on, they have to then create implementing legislation in their country and how this cases will be tried, you know, um, heard in court. And so, we told Japan that one of the issues that the US had is that we did not put more protections for women, that there was no um, language for domestic violence, and that there was no financial support for the mother at all. And these were the three critical things that were needed in their implementing legislation. And so they have actually done really well. Um, Theirs is one of the best legislation. And I feel, and now I'm helping India. It's now with the Punjab High Court. India has a group of incredible mothers who fled back with their children because of domestic violence, are so very organized. And they put pressure in the to the ministry there to say to the women and children's ministry not to sign the treaty 
Um, and so it is now with the Punjab High Court and I've told them that Japan is the best language that they should just use the language that Japan has. And so hopefully my hope is that the new treaties that get signed on will create implementing legislation that will match Japan's and then that will give some teeth for domestic violence, you know, to be entered into the courts. Fantastic. It's so good to know that there's signs of signs for optimism in this yeah. whole arena. Given all you've achieved and all you're still doing, um, we were thrilled when you said you would be part of this project. Can you tell us why you said yes and what you hope this project will achieve that you couldn't achieve in your own right? Uh, I mean, I think we need to be more organized in each country, uh, you know, because into the US, I'm only looking at cases that came into the US, correct? So while you are in London, in England, you are in Wales, you'll only look at cases that come into your country. So you generally do not follow the case that goes out of your country, you follow the case in your country. And so you're trying to create resources within your country to address that, you know, for mothers that come in there. And so I think that if we were all organized and we could all make sure that the, the um, resources that we put into place are very similar everywhere. So that if a woman from England is coming to US, she knows that it will be similar. It's an advocate there could work with her to say, over here, you will get pretty much similar services. So it'll be the other thing that we had great difficulty. We have great difficulties. These mothers flee like this, right? They don't. They have been planning in their mind, planning in their mind. But when the moment comes, you know, they're out. They can't take anything because it raises suspicions. So, um, so they flee with nothing. So often we don't have enough material about the domestic violence. All we have is her anecdotal stories. And so if she has gone to a doctor because she's received wounds for, you know, uh, to a doctor or to a police, we don't have any of those reports. And she dare not get them because she'd be afraid that it might trigger back to him. So she doesn't get them. So one is to make sure that these women who are thinking of leaving and wanting that they bring the information with them or that the advocate in that country, you know, is already knows so that they can then provide that information quickly because the cases are heard so fast that we don't have time for that. We also found that every case, if they had a expert witness, an expert testimony of children who witness violence, somebody who comes in and talks about it and the impact and the psychological damage that it does to kids actually would helps in her favor. So we have to make sure that consistently in these cases that they do have such an expert and this expert understands to tie domestic violence and the psychological abuse and the impact together. Most of the time they don't tie that. So, so I think by us working in different countries together and understanding all of these things, we have similar things so we can then assist lawyers you know, in each of our countries on how to prepare for these cases. So, so I'm hoping that we can then actually be able to give, and you know, and it, we cannot guarantee anything, right? But at least we can tell the mother, we are on your there, we are here for your support to support you, and we will do everything we can to help you. And you're not alone. And that I think is the biggest message that we need to give that we are all coordinated and we're all there to support her because she's often alone. That is a powerful way of ending. She's not alone. Thank you so much, Suda. Thank you for being part of the project and thank you for this podcast and we'll be hearing lots more from Suda in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hague Mothers is a filial legacy project. 
Please help us to raise awareness by sharing this podcast and others in the series. If you have experiences or expertise to contribute, please do get in touch with us at Philia. And we hope to see many of you at the Hague Mother's Session at the Philia Conference in Cardiff in October. Thank you for listening. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.